I've been around the world of writing for, for some number of years now, and one of the things that I encounter regularly when speaking of writing and the act of writing is the idea that it's really hard to come up with something new to say. I've heard this in the Festival of Faith and Writing several times. This, this conference, if you were there, I see some knowing nods. And, and one of the places where I think maybe we see that hard-to-find-something-new-to-say idea most often is Hollywood. There's a particular genre of movie that I'd like to talk about today, and that's the time travel genre. But I, I'd like to have your help here to start with. So shout out some time travel movies that you know of. I want to see. Time travel is like, okay, got Back to the Future. Hot Tub Time Machine? Thank you. That, no, that helps my sermon. I was waiting for that one. Good. They, very good one. Bill and Ted's. If, if that predates you, go watch it. It's a classic. All right, we'll, we'll end there. Thank, thank you for your help. One of the things that is common to the time travel genre of movies is this idea that we have to leave the present to solve the problem. Either we go forward in time or we go back in time, and somehow that makes the present uh, better. If you know the movie 13 Going on 30, the Jennifer Garner character, not popular at age 13, so she goes to age 30, realizes the things she needs to realize to come back to 13 to have a, a decent 13-year-old life. Movie click, not a classic. Not a classic, okay? But the Adam Sandler character fast-forwards through life and in the process learns he's kind of a, a dope and needs to go back and he actually gets another chance to do it again and, and this, is, this is great. Uh, this, this basic idea was there in It's a Wonderful Life, which is the first one that I could think of in the time travel genre. And probably It's a Wonderful Life is borrowing from Charles Dickens' uh, Christmas uh, Carol in, in which Scrooge learns a little bit about what it means to live life by having the Jacob Marley and the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future visit him. So in that, all of a sudden, we've got the way to make the present re good. Now, it's possible that even Charles Dickens was borrowing from Joseph. Joseph is seeing these visions and going to the king, and we, we, we heard this along the way in this semester, going to Pharaoh, rather, and, and, and helping him with his present problems. So we're, we're all in this time travel genre, let's say, in, in the story of Joseph. And here today in our text, chapter 43, we get to read it as though maybe we were that ghost of Jacob Marley or one of the good angels that have come and helped people see the problem. So we read it out of time, and we see the trouble that is happening, and we think, hey, no worries, family of God here. You're the chosen people. You'll get fed. God's name is Yahweh, and that means something. He'll take care of you. Don't stress out. And then we look at Jacob, Israel, and we see him really pushing the panic button about sending his son, Benjamin, to go down to Egypt with the brothers. Doesn't want to do it. Stonewalls the brothers' effort to feed the family. And we say, Jacob, don't you know who your God is? He's been there. He'll be there. Let go of, the, of your son. The brothers can handle it. He's, he's going to his full-blooded brother, full brother Joseph, after all. Joseph's going to take care of him. 
And we see Judah, and we see Judah stepping out for the first time. And we say, there you go, Judah. That's what it takes to get the Savior of the world to come from your house. Keep up the good work. Those mistakes you made in the past, hey, they're in the past, okay? You're doing good now. Keep it up. And then we go to Egypt with the brothers, and the brothers are panicking, thinking they're going to get attacked, and the donkeys are going to get taken, and they'll go to jail because of this whole problem with the silver that's in their sacks. And we say, boys, come on now. You are the people of God. God is watching out for you. If you would just open your eyes, you'd see it's your own brother, for goodness sakes. Don't stress out about that. But what if, let's pretend for, example, for a change here, that we are actually stuck in time and we don't know the future? What if you don't know what job you'll have this summer and how you'll make some money for school next year? That would be a stressor. What if you are carrying some guilt? And we read about that in, the, in chapter 42, the brothers are holding on to this guilt about what they did to Joseph that causes them to sort of see panic and, and, and hit the alarm button when trouble comes. Maybe that's part of our story, too. What if relationships are a problem? Maybe you don't want to get married, but your parents are saying, hey, have you found somebody? It's your sophomore year. You better find somebody. It's coming. And you're like, hey, calm down, folks. I'm not ready. Or you know who you want to marry, but they're saying uh, now's not a good time to get married. Stress is there. Or maybe, maybe you're struggling with your sexuality and this whole relationship thing is just a hard topic to deal with. These stressors can cause fear. They can manifest themselves in other ways in our lives too. Depression, anxiety, perhaps procrastination. Whatever they do to you, be it causing deep fear or, or just depression, stress, we don't have that magic remote that lets us fast forward through, through life to sort of see how they'll resolve themselves. We're here. We look at the story of these brothers and we see that God does not Reveal the whole picture at once. He's sort of like this cosmic Vanna White that comes and, and turns over one letter, gives us a little picture of what is stressing, gives them a little picture of what is stressing them. And in this case, that, that, that thing that gets turned over, that letter, that, that, that clue, is found in verse 23. And let me, let me read that one more time. It's from the steward of Joseph's house who says, Rest assured, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father must have put treasure in your sacks for you. I'd like to focus on two phrases in there. The first, do not be afraid. I'm guessing that sounds familiar to you. Anybody who's read a bit of the Bible would have encountered that several times. God says that to Abraham. Moses says that. Samuel, Isaiah, J- 
Jeremiah, Jesus, many angels say that to the Jewish people, the people of God, throughout the text. But how many times do we need to hear it before it sinks in? It's, it's, it's a lot easier to be said than to have it be part of who we are. Fortunately, the biblical narratives are not about people getting it right. They're not about perfection. They're not set up there as an example of what we need to be, who we need to be like. Rather, it's about people that bungle it up. In our story, Jacob, master manipulator. This is the guy who stole his brother's birthright. And this is the guy that we see here in chapter 43, still trying to grab onto power and keep it, hold it, telling these brothers what they got to do, exactly how they got to do it, and really, first of all, stopping them from doing what they have to do. Fortunately, he does, he does give in. But this emotional manipulation that he is so good at continues with his uh, blessing, let's say, of the final words of, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. And of course, he's only talking about two of his sons, and he's talking to ten other of his sons. But these ten, really, they're, they're, it's obvious, it's these two that he cares about, not, not one of these ten. Hey, but these ten sons, they're not so good themselves. One through ten, they stole eleven and sold them into slavery, right? So what we're dealing with is a family that best described as uh, dysfunctional here, okay? They've got problems. These, this is a family that is not operating out of trust in God or trust in each other, at least not in the, the times that we get to see. Rather, they're letting their fears dictate their behavior. They're letting their fears get inside of them, and they're operating out of that place. But God, God's advice to them is basic. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, people of God. But how do the brothers really let that mean anything? I want to make sure that you don't hear God saying this as though uh, he's talking to a depressed person saying something about, turn that frown upside down, right? That, that's, that doesn't work. That's not what God is, is, is about here. Rather, God is following this statement, do not be afraid, with another statement, and this is the second one that we need to focus on, this idea of having treasure in their sacks. So God doesn't just say, do not be afraid and leave it there. He goes and says, you've got something here. It's good. I, I gave it to you. It's something that will help you, something that you don't need to be stressed out about. And this is the first time in this chapter here where the brothers exhale and sort of let go of the stress that has characterized the story so far. There's kind of panic and the sense of anxiety. But here, when they find out that this treasure came from God, all of a sudden, okay, we can go forward. And it's like they're for the first time remembering, oh yeah, God, <laughs> that's right, you're in control. I remember now, Abraham had that promise from you, and, and we're the descendants of Abraham, the few who are, who are here. That still, that still applies. I'm wondering, where do you need this reminder that God is in control? Where have you gone along the way, stressed, anxious, 
wishing you had some sort of remote that you could fast forward through to see to the end to figure out how is this going to be resolved. Maybe you uh, saw that hot tub that you walked by and you wish, oh, if only that could give me a do-over and I could have a chance to get that thing right so I don't carry this guilt with me. Where is the place where God is telling you, do not be afraid? Wherever it is, the message is, God is watching. God cares. Do not be afraid. But we are human. We're finite. Like the brothers, just hearing those words shouldn't, God doesn't think that those words alone will solve the problem. There's more to that message, do not be afraid, than those simple words. He does not want you to make decisions out of fear because he, too, has given you a treasure or treasures in your sacks, many things to help you in the times where there is fear. Let's talk about what those treasures are. I can say some things about them, and I can't say other things based on who you are. Okay, one easy, obvious thing, though, one easy treasure that all of you Calvin students have is your education. There are billions of people in this world who don't have anywhere close to the education that you have right now. And I assume all of you will at least have one more day of this education in probably a few more years. Okay, you will graduate from here, most likely all of you, with some piece of paper that sets you apart. And it is to our advantage to see that as a gift that God has given us, a gift that God says, go forth and use this. I've given it to you. I'm caring for you. I see you. And then there's other things I can't say about this treasure. It has to do with your uniqueness and your passions and your talents and the way that God is going to use you to build his kingdom. You know what these are. I can't say that, except for a few of you who I know fairly well. But Most of you have a sense of where God lights a fire in your heart. And this is a treasure that God has given to you. In all of this, our job is to seek God, to give our fears over to God, to keep trying when we mess up to find God again. You may have heard this several times in your life when you think, okay, okay, yep, heard that before. But if it's hard, well, it doesn't matter. Keep trying. When you try tonight and you mess up tomorrow, try again tomorrow night to find a way to give your fears over to God. This may not be the perfect situation, but it is exactly how God set it up because of the final piece of the treasure, and that's the end. We know the end of our story. We can kind of pull out like we did with the brothers and know where we're going. And that is a place where the kingdom comes, God's will is done here on earth as it is in heaven, where the lion and the lamb lie down with each other, where there is no more pain, injustice, and peace reign. Now this kingdom 
is a promise that has been given to us. It's something that it's known, we've, we've heard a lot about, but again, maybe a little hard for us to fully live into it. So I'd like you to imagine a different story that we're in right now, a story where Christ did not defeat death, a story where we have to earn the afterlife or we just don't know what happens when we're done here. Now imagine the pressures that fear and the anxiety and the depression cause us, crushes us. In that story, when we don't know the end, all of a sudden we can make this cosmic mistake and not even know about it. But here in our story, we know how it will finish. Christ died, he defeated death, the victory is won. But I don't want to end there. In all of those time travel movies, they never leave the person hanging out in the future. You always got to come back to the present, you got to figure out that lesson and get it right for, for today. So how do we move from operating out of these fears and anxieties to living with joy? So I talked about this whole idea of, of, of giving our fears over to God, and I want to spend more time on what that, what that means. I think it can be summed up in, in a few simple words of being honest about who you are, where you are at with God, being a psalmist of your life. If your heart is broken, cry out. Say, God, take this cup of suffering I know, I know I'm not being nailed to the cross and like Jesus is not that bad, but it hurts. Be honest about it. If you're stressed about where you're going in, in the future, if you have no concept what life after Calvin looks like, it's this wide open space for the first time in your life, you have no clue, tell God, hey God, getting a little scared here. <laughs> I could use a little love. I could use a little voice, a little vision maybe of, of what's next. Something to let me know you care. God wants that. That's the theological sort of idea that's, that's at work. And what happens from that is an idea of being present to where we are, present to the moment. Okay? The, the thing about fears, the thing about anxieties, it causes us to go beyond where we are right now and start to worry about what we can't control. But when we go to God and when we cry out to God, God tells us, hey, I've given you something. I've given you a treasure. I've given you the idea that I, I am there for you. I watch over you and I love you. And with this, as, as that voice gets louder, the fears, the anxieties, the depression, that starts to soften. God's voice starts to rise as we go to him. I want to tell you a story about uh, one of the sessions from Festival of Faith and Writing. This was Eugene Peterson, and he was speaking to a few of us in the campus ministries office and the center for uh, worship here. And at the end of his talk, he, he wondered, so tell me what it's like to minister to college students now. What is what are, are some of the, the things that are, are going on? And, and we talked about, well, you know, uh, dealing with, with, with various technology that 
helps the students you know, communicate with a broader range of people, but we, we worry that they're not as, as present to the moment. And, and, uh, and then we talked about really, but in all of that, the question is, you know, who, who am I? And, and what is the meaning of, of this life? What, where am I to go? And, and, and uh, Reverend Peterson, who, who wrote the message, by the way, I didn't introduce him, wrote the message, several other books about spiritual theology, said, you know what, that's, that's, the, same, that's the same problem as 50 years ago. Yeah, the wrapping might be different. We might have this technology thing that's increased a little bit. But the idea of, of figuring out where we are, where we belong, who we are, is, is still the same basic fundamental question that we as humans ask ourselves. And, and he said this about how he resolves that. He says, I try to say to myself this, this simple few poems from a philosopher named Albert Boardman, a few lines of a poem, rather. He says, there is no place I would rather be. There is no one I would rather be with. There is nothing I would rather be doing, and this I will remember. So if the fears, and I'll throw in the wants, the desires, if they take us out of the present, out of the moment, then it's going to God and being honest with who he is, with, with who, rather, with where we are in him. That helps us be part of, of the moment. As we do this, as we continually try again and again to follow Christ, even though we mess up, like all of those biblical folks and heroes before us, Christ leads us to places where our treasure increases. And this, this place might not have money there, so it might take a little bit of trust, might take a little faith, imagination. This place might not come right away, so we'll have to wait, we'll have to hope, that's part, of, that's part of our story. But Christ will bring us there. And it's there where we find the treasure of our deepest meaning. It's there where joy reigns. It's there where we have purpose and we know whose we are and where we're going. And may we say of following Christ to his kingdom each and every day, there is no place I would rather be there is no one I would rather be with. There is nothing I would rather be doing, and this I will remember. If we do this, then Christ will work in us. His grace will wash over us, and take away those fears, take away those anxieties, and we will be free. This is the end. Amen.